you much. Well, good morning once again to everyone. Please uh, turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. I'll be reading a, reading a few verses out of that section there. Philippians 3. And I would ask if you'd please stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's holy word. Philippians 3, I'll begin reading at verse 7 and read down through verse 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Please be seated. What do you think of when you think of power? Uh, I often think of earthquakes in this regard. It's just, it's an unstoppable thing. You feel it underneath. It's kind of a, a we used to, you know, growing up in Southern California, it was uh, something that was relatively frequent. Um, we've even had a few up here uh, in the time we've been here, and some pretty good little shakers up here. But you might remember, those of you that uh, are a little older, uh, you might remember that big, huge earthquake that was in Kobe, Japan. Um, I'm trying to remember how many years ago that was now. It's, uh, it's a few years back. Anyway, um, that was in an area that was supposed to be prepared for earthquakes. Japan has a lot of earthquakes. But if you remember, those of you that uh, were paying attention to the news about that incident, uh, you would have thought that uh, they'd never heard of an earthquake, um, the way the buildings were tossed around and leveled and just a few minutes. That's power. And yet, there's another kind of power that's even greater. It's the power that can change a person's life forever to live and die for our Creator. And that power is what the Apostle Paul is speaking about here in this letter to the Philippian church, the power of the resurrection. And that resurrection power is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he uses that power to work on us and change us. When Christ walked out of that tomb alive, he demonstrated both the extent of the power of God, which absolutely defeats death, and also demonstrated the very basis of our faith. As Paul says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, that the resurrection is not a reality, we are of all men most to be pitied. Our faith, everything that we do, is in vain. 
But praise God it is a reality. Praise Him that it's not just something that a few people here and there thought was true, but this is a fact that was well attested by hundreds of eyewitnesses in the 40 days that followed that glorious first day of the week. It's also attested by the empty tomb of life seeming like we just can't get the Christian part of it together. Uh, whether it's falling temptation to to uh, falling uh, to temptation or just simply feeling cut off from the Lord, feeling um, hopeless and despairing as we look around the difficulties around us, challenging, challenging to live up to God's ways, particularly in difficult circumstances. Uh, there may be some here, or uh, I don't know, but... Uh, I look around and I don't think this is true of anybody here that I'm looking at, but it always, it always uh, uh, is a good idea for us to examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith. Do we really know him? Do we really know him? Or are we just kind of walking through and, uh, life, uh, just putting the exterior on that looks good, but the inside is dark and empty? Maybe you feel like your life is not what you sense it should be, particularly from what you read in the scriptures. Well, I want to assure you today, as we look at this passage, uh, that Paul is reminding us that you certainly can know the power of God in your life. And you can know it, not just in the sense of signs and wonders, but know it in the sense of his power to give you new life. And this passage tells you how that comes about. How do you and I know resurrection power? Well, in chapter 3 here, again, of the book of Philippians, um, in verse 9, for example, we see something here, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And we just talked about this maybe it was last week or maybe the week before, not too long ago, about the definition of righteousness. And those of you who have been here the last couple of weeks may remember this. We talked about righteousness as being uh, conformity to a standard is what is behind this word. And of course, the standard is God's character, God's law. He's the one who supplies the standards by which we measure our lives, our thinking, um, and the world around us. And wherever something is found wanting, uh, out of kilter with that standard, we say that's unrighteous. And I, if it still isn't jogging your memory, maybe the analogy that I've used before of, the, of, of a wall that is in conformity with a plumb line is a righteous wall because it's in conformity with that standard of the plumb line. If, if, if it's not uh, plumb or it's not square, that means it's an unrighteous wall. Um, this is North Idaho, so many of our homes are unrighteous, uh, sometimes extremely so, um, but uh, because they don't, they don't conform to that, the standard of that level or that plumb bob. Well, let me ask you, as, as you read these words about this righteousness that Paul is speaking of, I hope you're, I hope you're catching what he's saying there, that 
your righteousness, your own standard, is not sufficient. And yet for, for uh, the fallen world, the whole standard that they live by is concocted in their own minds and hearts. And I would love to say that uh, the church is immune from that kind of thinking, but it is not. All too often we fall. Remember the rich young ruler that Jesus spoke to in Matthew chapter 19, who was quite convinced of his own righteousness. He'd thought it out. He'd lived this way. He'd been consistent and so on. The Lord Jesus put his finger right on a problem. The young man had an idol in his life, an idol of his wealth, an idol of his possessions. And when Jesus told him to get rid of everything he had, he balked. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've done everything else. And Jesus said, no, you've got an idol. I mean, you, you, he didn't deny that the young man had tried to, you know, do the right stuff. He just said, basically, you got the wrong God. You've made God into your own image of what makes sense to you. And you, as long as that works for you, that's fine. But when the real God shows up and says, this is what my word says, the young man went away sorrowing because he had many possessions. Very sad story. Jesus would, would say in Matthew chapter 5, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's his standard that's in view. But you can, and you can only know the resurrection power of Jesus Christ if you have God's righteousness imputed to your account. And if you, by his grace, strive to live in that state. The fact is, is that keeping the law has already been done perfectly by Jesus Christ for us. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5 says, And you know that he was manifested or revealed to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Jesus Christ in both his, uh, what uh, theologians talk about as his passive and active obedience was perfect in every way. Passive in that he received from the Father and did what Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled all things. So there's no, nothing left for us to do. And uh, uh, Maybe you're not this way, but uh, so there's a little confession time uh, from me. Some of you probably already noticed this. If we've done any work together, there's... There's there's ways to do things, and then there's other ways to do things. So just yesterday, uh, myself and two brothers who shall remain nameless uh, were working on my car, and uh, we were discussing the various merits of of uh, various procedures that needed to be done. And there's a full procedure that's in the service manual of what should be done, which, what should be said. Um, but then there's the real life thing of what people... But that's a car, and you might be able to get away with that. With your soul, you can't. There's nothing that we can add to Christ's righteousness. And there's nothing that we can leave out because it's inconvenient truth to us, because we don't like it when it comes to salvation. God has revealed his plan to us, He's revealed his Redeemer to us and a Redeemer who has absolutely done it all and that is where our faith begins and ends, period. 
That's how you begin to engage in the righteousness of God. And that righteousness can only be acquired, as we read here, by faith in Jesus Christ. Another passage. This righteousness of God by faith is far more than just a, an intellectual acknowledgement that Christ existed. It's more than even believing that he was who he claimed to be. I mean, the devils also believe and tremble, right? The Savior, uh, he's the Savior who was sent by and he's one with the Almighty God. And it's wonderful for us to know that and acknowledge it. But there's got to be more than just acknowledging it. If we want to uh, know resurrection power in our life, there must be an actual relationship involved. That's, you know, with the, the devils, they believe, they know, they know who God is better than we do. But they're doomed. Because they're not in relationship, they're in rebellion. And knowing who he is, they reject him anyway and work contrary to him. So you, 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 have to, you have to have the righteousness of God imputed to your account, recognizing that Christ died in your stead and paid the debt for you. But that needs to issue forth through, uh, through uh, relationship and experience, personal contact with him in a relational manner. Now, when you look at verse uh, 8 again of chapter 3 in his death, we're going to look at several different ways uh, that this personal, I'm calling this personal contact. Um, you can talk about experience with or relationship with him. But I want you to notice the, the focus here. While Paul is saying, yeah, I, I want to knowingly suggest that, okay, here, you ready? He's knowable. Now, we can look at that like a Captain Obvious moment. But there are many in this world that don't believe that God is noble. They think that it's not just not possible not only to know God, but to know truth or know much of anything else. Kind of an agnostic mentality, uh, which uh, actually is quite an interesting thing because the minute you say, I cannot know anything, you are actually professing that you know something. You know that you cannot know. So if you can't know anything, but you know that, then you now are living in a position of absurdity, which much of the world is living in. Our Savior is knowable. In fact, that's something that from the very beginning in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, all through of that, what do you see God doing with his creatures, relating to them, speaking with them, talking with them, even when it's time to pronounce curse and judgment, he's still in intimate conversation with them. Adam walked with him in the garden. Incredible, mind-blowing thought, whatever exactly that means. But there's relationship that's involved. And throughout uh, as God deals with the patriarchs and then as he deals with the children of Israel and then later on as he sets them aside for a time and grafts in the Gentiles, all the way through the New Testament, it's about, I will be 
your God. I will be a father to you. You will be my people. I will dwell with you. I will know you. You will know me. One of the glorious promises of the new creation and heaven for eternity is that we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. It's in obedience to our God. Think about those of you that uh, are married. I want you to think about the demands and the rewards of knowing your spouse excellently. If you know your spouse well, um, does that just happen? No, you have to work at it. You have to talk. You have to spend time together. You have to do all those things. You have to serve one another. Um, but there's great rewards or benefits for doing that. Not that we're striving, I trust, uh, to do that in a self-serving way. Well, I'm going to love you because I'm going to really gain a lot from it. You know, I have gained a lot from it. Uh, but that's not what it's about. Okay? Uh, but the rewards of intimate fellowship, joy, peace, uh, safety in that relationship, confidence in one another, even in difficult times, all of that comes to a great degree dependent upon how well you know your spouse and act upon that knowledge. Well, if that's true in a human relationship, how much more true do you think it is, particularly since it's encouraged in the Word over and over and over again, that we know our God that way? Come, let us reason together, says the Lord, is His command to us. He welcomes that interaction. We talk about, we're going to be celebrating communion here in just a little bit. And this communion is not just an empty ritual. It really is about fellowship with him in the most intimate way as we meditate upon what he's done for us and contemplate who he is, the holy creator of all things, redeemer, king, master, uh, suggested by another word. Indeed, I count everything as loss. And down to the bottom there, where it says right at the end, in order that I may gain. Okay. I want to talk about that word gain. He's not just a, a knowable Savior. Uh, but as we talked about the rewards here just a, a bit ago, uh, he is a, if you prefer a more theological term, that pour out to us as the streams of living water that come through Jesus Christ that only he can give, that give us life, that give us joy, that give us hope, that give us strength. These blessings and many, many more are, are part and parcel of who he is, and we need to know him in that respect. You need to know those benefits. If there is no joy, if there is no peace, if you are in constant torment, something is wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a Christian, though it might mean that. But it certainly means, at the very least, that you don't really know the Lord according to his word. If you're in constant turmoil, a constant pain, scriptures are pretty clear, perfect love casts out fear. So if you've got fear, your love isn't perfect somewhere along the way. A welcoming Savior. This is about being recognizing that we are safely found in him. It's, he's, he's our, and this really goes along so well with the Lord's 
a picture of himself as a refuge, as the one who takes us under his wings, to be found there, to recognize that we do not serve this frowning providence that, that is looking, uh, uh, you know, just looking for the opportunity to smack us whenever they can, but to, to rest in peace in the one who welcomes us, takes us in, loves us in spite of everything, and keeps us for eternity because of Jesus Christ. And to rest in that kind of peace and welcome found in him. I think of those precious words, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the Savior that we need to know. Life that somehow, you know, we just have to, we have to show him every day that we're worthy. And we need to just stop doing that because we're not. Only Christ is worthy. And the only reason we have any worth before in his sight at all is because we are hidden in Christ, because Christ's name and Christ's sacrifice is, is marked in the record books and the count is paid in full. Now we have standing as sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. So we need to know him and have that kind of experience with him, with that kind of comfort and that kind of rest. And of course, all of this wouldn't mean a thing if he wasn't God. So there's lots of Christs in this world, and there are lots of those that claim to speak for him in this world, and that will continue more and more uh, as the days approach of his return. More and more false saviors out there. But look what you see there in verse 9. That I be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He is divine. It came from God, his power, uh, his message, his task. He claimed it. He proved it. He lived it. His deity is the reason that lives are really changed when they truly know him. It's why if you're in Christ, you are a different person than you were before. Sometimes the change in us may be dramatic because of the, the extremity of our sins prior to our regeneration. And sometimes it's more subtle because we grew up in uh, circumstances and homes where we were, you know, kind of under control and everything looked fine on the outside, but we still needed to be regenerated. But in either case, when Christ gets a hold of us, we're new creatures. The old things are passed away, and only God can do that. This is the Christ we need to know. If you want to claim that you are possessors of God's power because of his resurrection, and yet you're still living the old life with contentment and peace, and the elements of it do not bother you at all, then you need to ask yourself some questions, some hard questions about the reality of who it is and what it is you're actually trusting. You need to also be in personal contact or have experience with a Savior who is suffering. And this is a, we see this here because of the, the, uh, the uh, sorry, in verse 10 there in the middle where it says that I may share his sufferings. Now for many, uh, and this this troubled uh, uh, the Jews. They didn't when they talked about the suffering servant. They see that in the Old Testament. They 
they, would, they assumed that that meant Israel through all of its afflictions and trials and, and uh, slavery and, uh, and all of those things, the exile. Uh, but uh, they could not get their minds around the fact that the Messiah was the suffering servant, that the Messiah, all they could see him was as the conquering hero, the conquering king that would come in and deliver them and usher, usher in the golden age. He wasn't going to suffer. He's the king. They couldn't conceive of, of Jesus Christ as being, well, as Jesus being the Christ. Because here he is, he's just this, he's, he's not even, he's not royalty, he's not of a ruling house. Uh, as far as they're concerned, though, if they had troubled themselves to look at his lineage, he come, came right from David. But hey, they weren't looking at that. They were looking at someone who's a carpenter's son in the obscure little town of Nazareth. born under what they saw as questionable circumstances. And not only that, he goes and endures suffering affliction even to the, to the crowds. Uh, unless you eat of my flesh or drink of my blood, you have no, you can't have life. You have no part in me. And many left, turned away, because saying this is a hard saying. Who can, who can, can't stand this. Um, it's, I'll put it in, the, in, in modern vernacular, as far as the world's concerned, nobody wants to follow a loser. Nobody wants to follow someone that, that is suffering and is put down and all of that. That doesn't make any sense to them. But you cannot know resurrection power unless you know the one who suffered and died. That just can't happen. You have to recognize him and, and, and be willing as we partake here in this, in this table. We are partaking not just of the, the flesh and blood spiritually, we are partaking of the shame that he endured by identifying with what the world thought of as a shameful thing and recognizing though that that shameful thing that occurred is in fact the very thing that saves us. And so we rejoice in it. This word to share in, uh, in the ESV translates a word that uh, some of the other translations have as fellowship. We have fellowship with him in his sufferings. And that uh, word there is the one that we're familiar with, koinonia. Most people know that Greek word anyway. Speaking of association or communion, um, the, the root of that word has to do with something that is common. It means that we're sharing in common bonds with the Lord Jesus Christ in his sufferings. If you look at Hebrews chapter 7, we come to understand why that suffering is important. Hebrews chapter 7, um, beginning at verse uh, 26 it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. When you put that together with what the writer of Hebrews says earlier in that letter, 
In chapter 4, we read, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with because we know that carefree Jesus, that kind of thing is utterly foreign to biblical Christianity. And then uh, finally in this section, having personal contact or experience with a risen Savior, uh, which uh, is uh, kind of the reason we're talking about this today, especially. But notice the verse of Lazarus' sister. It was shown to be true throughout his ministry at Calvary, at the empty tomb. It was confirmed in the mouths of many witnesses after the resurrection, as we mentioned before. And also, as we mentioned before, it, furthermore, it's been shown to be true in the lives of countless believers ever since. So Martha's, or Jesus' question to Martha is a good one to ask ourselves. Do you believe this? This is the Savior you need to know. The one who is risen. Not the one who's still hanging on a crucifix. Not the one who... Uh, some churches sacrifice over and over again every week uh, in, because of their f faulty understanding of what's happening in the Lord's Supper. He's a risen Savior. He's conquered death. And unless you know Him in that way, you don't know Him at all. And you can never know His power. Now, this uh, this. These verses that we've just looked at are not just a list of unconnected items. I know you know that, uh, that we can just kind of cherry pick and, and uh, decide which ones we like. As we said before, knowing Christ doesn't just stop with understanding a few facts about him. Truly knowing him involves a total commitment. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Because look again at verse 10. And 11, really. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You know, ultimately, and this is another one of those uh, aha, Captain Obvious sort of moments, <laughs> if you think about it for a minute. You can only know resurrection power if you die. Let me say that again. I just want you to think about that a minute. You can only know resurrection power if you die. Being conformed to his death. That, that, uh, uh, becoming like him in his death. That's the governing clause, the governing word here. It's actually a, it's actually one big long word. Um, it's a participle, which means it's a verbal noun. It's saying this is, it describes what something is by what it does. And that's what this relationship is about. How do I know him? It's by being conformed. It's by being like him. Unto his death, if necessary. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean a literal death. 
but it does mean dying to uh, some things. In 1 John chapter 3, and uh, well, I'm going to resist the temptation to delve into this because we're going to be delving into it when we jump back into our series in 1 John uh, fairly shortly. But 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If your life is characterized by sin, you can say you love him and you say you're his all you want to, but it's not true. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. This is not speaking about sinless perfectionism. It is speaking about the character and pattern and habit of your life. So dying, first of all, to sinful desires and sinful patterns is part of how we must die. If you want to know resurrection power, you can't go on living in a life of death, which is what sin is. Now, we did already talk from 1 John uh, chapter 2. We've spent, uh, in fact, I think it was the last, the last uh, message in, uh, in chapter 2. Those familiar verses, do not love the world or the things in the world. The, the uh, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions or life. This is about dying to the world's values. We talked about that uh, at some length before. Um, if, if the world's more important to you than God is, then you will never know his power over sin. You will never know his power to live victoriously and confidently and, and in peace and harmony in a world that's filled with affliction and fearful things. You've got to die to sinful desires. You've got to die to the world's values. Philippians chapter 1 tells us we need to die also to uh, self or a self-centered vision, if you prefer. In Philippians 1, uh, verse 19, uh, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Pretty clear that Paul is not out there living for himself. He's not out there living for what he can get or for uh, um, any sort of status or anything else. He's living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's not to say that Paul didn't appreciate the things of this life. He did appreciate it. He thanked folks when they gave those things to him uh, to supply his needs and so on. And he knew all of his needs were supplied. But he didn't live for those things. That didn't govern his life, didn't control him, tells us that. So, and we can enjoy them. But... Paul says we need to be willing to die to those things. Christ is the game, not all this other stuff. If it means putting everything else aside to find Christ and love Christ and live with him, then we need to do that. It's the only way that you will know resurrection power. 
if he is truly all in all to you. And then finally, as we see here in verse 11 of chapter 3, that by any means possible I may attain from the resurrection of the dead. Um, get back to for what we just saw there in chapter 1 as well, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If that means dying physically for his sake as a martyr, to say with him, say with Paul, like he said to Timothy, I am now ready to be offered. It's a hard thing for us. I, I remember when I was young, kind of praying that the Lord wouldn't come back uh, again, because there were things in life I wanted to do still. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if anybody ever prayed that kind of a dumb prayer before, but anyway. I mean, that's part of our, you know, kind of uh, the way we think. We've, we, we've got uh, some things we want to see happen. We, we uh, hope that uh, certain things that even though we know they're going to be great don't happen yet because there's other things that we'd like to do and see. Uh, Greg uh, and, uh, was talking with us as we drove together this morning. about He's talking about planting trees on his property, which right now has a house on it, but no, no trees. And so he's talking about climbing. He says, well, you know, and maybe, well, actually, he didn't say maybe, so of course I'll be dead by the time they're all, you know. I said, well, plant bigger trees, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, there are things that we'd like, oh, I want to do this stuff, but Lord, I don't really want to die yet because there's other stuff I want to do. But are we willing to give up our lives for his sake? Many in this world are faced with that question Literally every day. We're spoiled here. But that day may come here. And it would behoove us to think ahead and say, am I really willing to give my life gladly for the sake of the cause of Jesus Christ? If you're not willing to do that, if your physical life is more precious to you than living for Jesus Christ, Beloved, you're in a bad way. You will never know his resurrection power. You can only know that if you're willing to die. So do you know what the power of God is all about in your life? Do you have God's righteousness imputed to your account and is his, the evidence of his righteousness there in your life and character? Do you really know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you turned away from sin and the world? Christ conquered death. He's the victor. Live by his power. If you are not doing that, then call upon him while he's near, for now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. As the Lord says to all of us through the prophet Isaiah, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Lord, let us know your power, living in victory over sin, temptation, despair, hopelessness. Lord, let us know him in such a way that the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are his. Lord, we ask that we would put aside the weights that so easily beset us, these sins and, and temptations, and run with patience the race that is set before us, and by your grace and power, come safely home. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, who conquered death.
the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, if you'd take your hymnals, please. We're going to the Psalter portion, uh, Psalm 22. It's the B setting, 22B. All you that fear Jehovah's name. 22B. Standing as you're able, please. All you. 